Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. Uh, super excited to be with you today. We are joined by David Kirkdorfer. So, David, welcome to the show. Hello, hello, everyone. <laughs> I love it. So, David, you've had a bit of an interesting journey in the sense of being in-house, being the consultant. You get to see things on the inside and on the outside. What's what's next for you right now? What are you, what are you kind of focused on? So I've been doing consulting for about the last two years, um, which has been convenient and good, I should say. Yeah. But I do miss working with a um, insider team, even though, of course, were I to join one right now, I'd be right. <laughs> I'd be right here, right? So, so. Yeah. But I am. I do look forward to when we're able to eventually go back to an office. I think that's that's. I find that's a great place, a great environment to work within. Yeah, what, what do you think has been the craziest part, you know, along that lines of just going remote and then doing marketing? Because, you know, we're marketing to people, but I think people forget that we market with people. So what have you found be them into this fully remote, not even a hybrid world, right? Right, not even. I mean, at least not in our world, right? Um, yeah. So we're, we've got these office jobs. We're quite lucky, in fact, that we can even have these types of this type of work, right? There's some kind of marketing that used to be more in the field, and that's much harder to do. Um what I found to be the, perhaps the biggest challenge is yep. while we're able to have these great conversations that in some ways can get quite deep, they're always scheduled. So it's a little difficult to have something on the fly. Oh, what do you think of that? Or yep. just walk down to someone's office and say, hey, I got an idea and kind of like lower the temperature on, on communication. This is, so you can try email, you can try Slack, you've got, you've got tools, but that slightly more casual and it's in that casual zone where you get confirmation where you get calibration um before you have to become official with something this makes it a bit more official that's been my experience anyway no i love that now this is sour and sass yes <laughs> i knew we'd come to this <laughs> <laughs> do you have some candy available i oh, do yes, you know. all right all right, now. Should we break one out? Hang on, let me, uh, oh. I've been staring at this package all week. Trying yeah, to oh, get I into it. All right, I've got, pick any color, any any kind. Oh yeah, any color. I'm gonna start with, I guess, the red pill, just because. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Oh, it's always so sour. It never disappoints. Um, When, when you say you wanna get, back to a company, back to in-house. Mm -hmm. What criteria are you looking for? I think a lot of, you know, we have a lot of, I think, younger marketers listen to the show as well. And they're so sour. Mm -hmm. They are. Some of the biggest career mistakes I think we can make is choosing the wrong organizations. Hmm. And I think the wrong organizations are easy to see in hindsight. Mm -hmm. The right ones are really hard to see even in the right time. So is there something you're looking for that makes the organization a good fit for you? Wow. These are sour. Um, uh. <laughs> so for me, yeah. at this point in my uh, – right, I, I mean, I'd be happy to answer also thinking about if I was starting today, what I would answer. But for myself today, I'm looking for a company um, ideally in the B, in the B space, B round, um, okay. where they've built it. They have a few customers. They're looking to scale it. They haven't found the formula yet. They may have, but they have, they're not sure. Yeah. Um, 
maybe they've taken on a C round, but they still haven't found it. And it hasn't become a factory. And I use the term factory kind of in an in endearing way, where among all the go-to-markets available, we've found the one that we want to work with, and now we're just pedal to the metal on that one. That's yeah. you know, you're, that's where things really take off. I like that stage just before where we're still trying to find what is the way. Um, there's, Why? there's more freedom to be creative within that. Okay. So when you move to that next stage of scaling, you start to replay the same motions that you had before. Now, it becomes, obviously, it becomes more about how efficient you can be and effective with capital allocation and less about how creative you can be about creating momentum. It's about maintaining a momentum and speeding it up instead of creating it from the nothing, right? It's a that's, different. That's yeah. part of it. Exactly right. So you're optimizing what has been working. You're obviously, you still have to be creative within that lane of what worked. You can't just send the same email for the next five years, right? You can't run the same ad. You can't do the same webinar. You have to continue to be interesting and creative. But you're, um, something about the organization, I, I don't want to use the word ossifies because that's just a bit too strong because tech is yeah. always flexible. That's one of the great challenges and benefits of the tech market is that your company, if it's successful, has to find a way to retain flexibility um, yep. to keep up with the, the changing innovation around it. Um, yep. But so I like the earlier stage. Uh, I'd love, I, I like, I look for companies now for myself personally that have a footprint in Boston, not necessarily because I am located in Boston. Um, yep. For myself, I find, as we were talking about earlier, it's yeah. nice to be able to talk to people casually as well as formally. Um, yep. It might be a year before we go back into an office, but there is that hope. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be a Boston, you know, headquarters, but there's a there's a footprint. No, that's so. The, what I'm intrigued by here, David, is this moment that you had of like self awareness or self identification that you were a builder more than an operator. So, and what I mean by that is, I like to kind of take yeah. people and leaders because I've learned about myself. For example, I'm a builder and I'm not an operator, and so I have to surround myself with executives that are good. I can go from A to B, but there's way better people in this world from going from B to Z. And so I kind of learned that about myself. At what point did you learn that? Because that's what essentially what you're saying is you like to get things from A to B more than from B to Z. So when did you kind of identify that in yourself? How did that come to be? What was that journey like of kind of self-identification or awareness that this is what I'm best at and this is where I need to position myself to be most effective? That's a really wonderful and very interesting question. So part of the answer is there was some direction to it. And part of it just, this is just life. This has just been what I've been doing. So it's kind of what I've known. The, yeah. the, what, what I can say is that even within the largest of organizations, there is the need to be a builder. Yep. Don't be fooled by the size of the organization. I would, uh, when I joined CA, a very large organization, we, we were in a building mode within the group that I was in. And yep. it was just like being in a startup, except with some crazy resources and lots of layers of management, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> so, and I had some great experiences and great learning from that time period. But, but I guess I also like working within teams um, and, some, and where the work on the team takes up more time than the discussing the work that we did on the team. So 
um, the ability to to not have to. I mean, you always have to be measuring and tracking and 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 showing what you've been doing. But the creative aspect and the, and the doing of it, you're you're more hands on in the in the more creative environments as opposed to pulling levers and managing other people who are doing things, which can be great, but just yeah. that's not my thing. I know I love that, dude. And it's good that you're you know it's cool to see how self aware you are of that now. Getting more into the tactical side of marketing, you know, um, what do you see as like the biggest disconnect today between marketing and sales development? Because I don't even want to say marketing and sales, but just marketing and sales development. This like moment of handoff where marketing, quote unquote, did their job and now it's sales development's turn. And then, then it's the AE's turn, right? Through those kind of three teams, what do you see? as like the biggest problem universally amongst those three groups working together today? At the top level, if the VPs or the heads of those organizations are working together, can physically be close to each other and are friendly, that's yep. always a positive because a lot gets worked out on that alignment. When the organizations get very big, they don't have the opportunity that they might wish for to have that type of engagement and then things can drift apart. It, it comes down to trust. Each group has to trust that the other group has their best interests in mind, not just the interests, their own parochial interests in mind, right? Yeah. So if the, if the business development team trusts that the marketing team is not trying to stuff the system full of noise because yeah. that satisfies marketing metric requirements for people's you know, OKRs, but actually are focused on actually trying to find interesting inquiries that are worthy of becoming MQLs, that are worthy of receiving a phone call, then that makes a big difference. If the SDR or business development team um, is trusted by the AEs to be doing a good job of representing the company and qualifying and, and, and sharing the message with prospects and seeing if prospects are interested, yep. then that means that the AEs are, um, if you will, not second guessing, and yeah. um, over-managing um, yeah. potential partnerships that they have with SDR. So trust is the, is the main currency. And you earn that trust by communicating and understanding what the other guy is trying to do and what, what, what your work represents to them. And if, you know, garbage in, that's garbage for them. So try and filter out, don't give them garbage, give them less but better and they'll appreciate it. Yeah, David, one of the things I've seen though, and this is where it gets a little tricky and I love your perspective is I love to have shared goals, right? I think everyone has, should have a shared goal. So like marketing sales development, AEs have a shared revenue goal because they're all codependent on each other. Now, what I've found too, is when you then tie individuals within those departments, compensation to those shared goals, you can sometimes run into problems. For example, let's say marketing's doing great. Sales development's doing great and AEs aren't closing. But the SDRs have a large portion of their OTE tied to AEs, you can create a riff, right? And then if SDRs are, or AEs are expecting inbound to drive 75% of their ops and they're only getting 25, but now they're expected to prospect because SDRs aren't helping them. Now you have all these different people. So is there any best practices you've seen around goal setting so that we have alignment but not fragmentation? My, my my advice would be to goal set on quality 
And then once you've found how to achieve quality, can you find how to scale that quality? So start right. a quality instead of quantity, because sometimes when you start a quantity, you get so much junk that quality never even happens. Is that make measurements be ratios? So don't don't give marketing a goal of MQL numbers, though that might be part of what falls out. Yeah. Give them a goal of ratio of things that they turn up turning into opportunities. Mm. And that's quality. Now, that means I mean, the example I, 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 I've given, and some people might, if they listen to this, would, would maybe remember me saying, if I had a VP of sales who said to me, David, I need leads from you. And I said, okay, good. I've only got 10 leads for the whole quarter. But each one I know will sell for a million dollars. That sales VP would go like, you're my man, David. I love it. I don't have to wade through all this stuff. You're telling yeah. me I'm going to make $10 million? I'm good, right? As opposed to, I'll, I'm going to give you a hundred thousand inquiries, and I can't tell you which ones are going to give you the ten million dollars. Yeah, and the, the one of the things that, I'm saying. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think one of the things we forget around quantity um, is what it does to your blended customer acquisition cost, because there's a lot more waste than we ever recognize when it comes to headcount required for yes. quantity without the necessary quality. In other words, it's more inbound SDRs. It's more solutions consultants. It's more tech costs. It's more everything. It's more licenses. It's more seats. It's more, and the bloat from that can be detrimental, almost devastating to a growth organization. So I do love your perspective of quality first. Um, the other thing that changes the equation, and this is a this is by the way an evolution, right? So ten years ago, even. It was difficult to secure the contact details for a lot of your enterprise or SMB prospects. You didn't yep. have their phone number. You didn't have access to their email. Now there are data sets available that any SDR can tap into and plugins to be able to find, you know, on, on the, or Chrome extensions to, to gather that information. So where marketing used to spend money and energy trying to capture those, essentially creating spreadsheets of people who are ICP-ish, right? That isn't the challenge today because that's easy to accomplish. Now the challenge that marketing needs to try to take on board, rather than um, having lots of download pages, is trying to drive people who have um, interest now. So, in, in my view, yeah, uh, you know, there's I can't remember the name of the writer. He says three percent of your market is actually in a buy mode, and the other ninety-seven percent are not. And he's got them in, you know, twenty-seven percent here and twenty percent there, and that's, that's all good. So, it's. My, my view is give visibility to what's going on among the accounts to the sales reps so that they can choose to take something if they have information to say, hey, that's a good guy for me. I know he's not ready. I know he hasn't met our mutual criteria. I, I have visibility to what's going on and I can take when I need it rather than yep. it's become assigned to me because of some um, definition that's um, you know too early in, in the process. So um, the, the focus now is is to focus, I think, on, on driving more more contact us's, uh, demo yeah. requests and pricing requests as much as possible because those people are exhibiting some type of intent. No, I love that. Now, David, this is Sour and Sass. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh man, all right. Hmm. That one's sour. I think the second one is always the worst. Hmm. I got Take grape, sour grapes. Oh, what is this one? I have strawberry grape. Hmm. It's a weird flavor. Um, 
Let's talk about tech. So what kind of tech do you see that is almost like a requirement these days for marketing and sales orgs that they need to be effective, right? To harness intent, to do scoring, to nurture, to follow through, to follow up. Like what kind of tech have you seen be most effective right now um, across a lot of different organizations and what's kind of critical to your success in your mind? You have to have a website. <laughs> the quality of your website is a lot. The quality of your hero section on your website is, I don't know, you know, 50% of the value of the entire thing, right? People yep. will come to that and within 10 seconds evaluate, are you in consideration? Are you, do I understand you? So that hero section message, your strategic narrative, to borrow some terms from Andy Raskin, what yep. you present there is, is vitally important because if it's not tuned appropriately and you're not all, the people who are coming who you're bringing don't understand it, they're just gonna bounce off. And so that's gonna be a mess. So tuning the website, um, managing that is is critical. Um, you need to have, I believe, in the in the kind of um, SaaS marketing you know world that I'm we live in now, you have to have some kind of CRM, central repository of of, of history. Many times yeah. the system has more information that goes back longer in time than any of the VPs working at the company now. So, um, just because we in tech have high turnover doesn't mean that our clients do. So they may remember us. We should be able to remember them. The system of record, your CRM becomes so the sales forces and the Salesforce competitors that are now on the marketplace because Salesforce, it used to be light and easy and the replacement for the on-prem system has now found itself pushed into this higher market. And there are people coming in saying, that Salesforce is too complicated. You need something more your scale. So it's, it's really interesting to see how that has happened. Um, yeah, no. Having the ability to, to send emails, obviously, communications is, is rather vital. Um, if you are selling stuff, then your ability to do customer service um, in, a, in a, an effective way with your customers becomes a, your, those are vital systems to get, get right um, incrementally so that your customers can, can interface with you simply without, you know, uh, the, the more quickly they can get an answer to something, the more um, complete the information provided to your internal teams to, to satisfy, um, that's that's all vital. Yep. There's um, now more than ever, the buyer can go anywhere to find stuff. So put your message in front of them where they go yeah. um, and give them a reason to come and visit you. Um, so the digital marketing that you can do the and the, the way in which you're able to tightly uh, target with different types of platforms. The more tightly you can target, the more tightly your message can be written. The more tightly the message is written, the more it's li more likely it will resonate with the intended audience. So- Yeah, within is like copy, right? Copy used to be this big thing, right? Like we, copywriting was this like holy grail almost of marketing. And it, it's like disappeared almost. Like copywriters yeah. are dead. So what happened there? Because I don't think words became less important where did copywriting go and why is it such an undervalued skill in in-house marketing teams and everyone? It's a great question. I don't know, but I think it's back. I think it's coming back. Right. So in um in as a as a you know a marketing leader, if I say, huh, I've got a marketing problem, I 
you know, there's there's the the Martech uh, 8000 now, <laughs> which actually is 8500. That that wonderful chart that some people will remember, with logos that you need a magnifying glass to be able to see. Yeah. How on earth? How on earth can you distinguish between all the messaging between 8,500 vendors when they all promise you better leads for less money? Like, so copywriting becomes rather critical. Um, yeah. Helping me understand quickly and in a way that makes me emotionally respond to your brand in a positive way. So back when there used to be, you know, four database vendors on the planet, you didn't, you, you messaged around the technology and you had a certain kind of visibility and, and it wasn't about being like consumer. I think today business to business marketing needs to borrow from consumer marketing because yeah. one of the ways you distinguish your brand isn't necessarily around the capability set because you kind of all do so many of the same things. It's more like, do you feel like my kind of company? Do I relate to you? Yeah, that's a good point, David, because I, I've been saying this for a while now of like B2B needs to take from D to C because my industry of performance marketing has like bastardized and ruined marketing in general, in my opinion, to make everyone think they're one tactic away from fixing their problem. They're one channel away from fixing their problem. They're, but the truth is, is they're an entire brand away from being anything anyone wants. And we've forgot this idea that we should make ourselves desirable. And I know it sounds silly, but it's nobody's really focused on that in B2B in general. It's very much still tactical. Look at all the things we do. Look at the problems we solve. But it's very much ignoring, do you like us? Are we likable? Are we approachable? Do we have brand affinity? Are you a fan of us? Like, do we have fans? Right. How can we, as B2B companies, David, in your mind, create fans? How can we focus on building fandom? For, for our companies? Communities that we foster, communities mm -hmm. of customers talking to each other, communities where they can help answer each other's questions. So a lot of the largest and oldest tech brands have always had this. Um, you would go to shows, you'd have, you know, SIGs and BOFs, right? Special interest groups and birds of a feather. Um, some of the first trade shows that I went to, which you can imagine would have been a long time ago now, <laughs> had those and they were present and they had user groups and the user group was completely separate from the vendor and actually made requirements of the vendor to put together an event. So communities can be created that way because um, when you when you talk about what's interesting to you and find other people who are interested in the same things, you feel more affinity towards the overall package, right? Um, yeah. So that's one aspect. Humor. And on that, Humor. before we go back to that, oh, yeah. I actually see the same thing as society groups has been really big. Like we have a group called Society and it's a Slack group. And that's been really effective for us because we have a high average order value. We only work with larger organizations or funded startups. Like it's not cheap, right, to work with us. So we don't have tons of customers and we don't want tons of customers as a professional services firm. So it's hard to build fans. So we want society as a way to expand our market share and help more people. Do you think, like, because I know you're a big member of like Revenue Collective, do you think these like digital groups? can be effective for SaaS companies to start their own communities, to start their own Slack groups, or does it have to be field marketing or can we do it digitally? You know what I mean? Uh, I think that they can all work, right? So um, one custom, I mean, and they all can feed into each other. You might find more success with one in particular than the other. If that's the case, 
then maybe invest further there, right? If if, um, but you don't have you don't want to give up on the other ones, but you just kind of scale appropriately. So, for example, um, one of my clients has um, been providing technology to the .NET developer world. There used to be lots and lots of .NET focused trade shows. Of course, they are not happening right now around the world. So yeah. all of a sudden, you need to kind of so that used to be a place where you could find community and build community a little bit, right? But yeah. there are lots and lots and lots of .NET LinkedIn groups for almost every state and 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 every capital um, within the states. Can you work through the existing .NET um, groups now? That's just an example. Um, mm -hmm. Very early in my career, I had a, a, a wise um, a boss who said, if someone makes money at it there's an association for it. Mm. And that's like, huh, well, there's another kind of way to kind of tap in. If you're a security company, a cybersecurity company, and you're starting out, maybe you should be doing some work with um, ISACA or ISSA or SANS. Yeah. And those groups already exist and become um, introduced through the, the reference almost of, yeah. of that association. Um, so you can kind of grow into an existing group um for example yeah no i love that and so as we become fans is there something in our branding that allows us to become more of a brand you know because i think one of the reasons i'm noticing this is right SaaS has become very much like there's two parts of SaaS. you have the character SaaS, and then you have the real faces SaaS, <laughs> right like you're talking about a hero page and the importance of it when you land on a a hero page in SaaS, you have one of two options, essentially. There's the whimsical characters or there's real humans, right? There's Gong and Drift on the real human side. There's Asana, Alicean, or how the heck you say that name, and them, right? And then and everybody else, right? Like there's just two different groups. What do you think is more effective? And do we need to choose one? Is it based on our audience? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's I, – I, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a definitive answer. I think that both can work. Right. Yeah. So um, some clients I've had when they feel as if they want to become more serious, serious, excuse me, change their branding from cartoon type characters that they may have had to more pictures of real people and yeah. buildings yeah. and modern tech angular, angular buildings. And I'm, I'm like, uh, but you do it because you feel as if you want to go up market and you want to look like an up market kind of company. Yeah. And I say, uh, well, now you look like everybody else. Maybe that cartoon wizard might have been a better motif to kind of holds because we're all individuals as buyers. Now, depending on the cost and the, the type of solution being sold, sometimes, especially in the larger companies, the more it costs, obviously, the more people who have um, input and veto over the technology that's purchased. So you kind of narrow out and kind of go to the middle. But a lot of tech in big companies is still bought by individuals, especially in the developer side, obviously, um, or smaller groups. And you need to be able to appeal to that smaller group because they want to be the rebels within the big company. Mm -hmm. And we they all want, want to feel as if we're being innovative. So when you, we talk about that, you know, a lot of times clients have this assumption that the decision maker is who they need to market to. And I've always said that your point of contact once you get onboarded to a client is actually more important. Your champion is more important than your decision maker. What have what have you seen with digital? And have you seen decision makers be more effective to try to market to? Or have you seen it be more effective to try to market to champions and point of contacts and then have them sell you internally, right? What have, what have you seen work best? So 
these guys have written the book on this, right? So yep. just dropping yep. some, just dropping this. I, I, of course, I bought this on CD because I thought I'd be driving around in my car and, you know, going places and <laughs> going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't need that. So, so my answer is you need to market to both, but you expect different things at different points from them. The larger the yep. purchase, the, the, the more complicated the sale, the more the ultimate decision maker is going to want to have input from a variety of people to all go thumbs up. We're going to want to diversify the risk, just like with investments. So I don't want to make this decision that's going to cost us $10 million on my back. I need us all to agree. So CIOs, the senior level people, are going to say, hey, I need you all to say whether this is good or not, because it doesn't matter if I think it's great if you don't think it's great. So I want to lead with vision, and I think this tech can enable it. What do you think? Tell me, honestly, right? I mean, I'm not trying to play a, a political game. Um, yeah. Once you go further down and you sell solutions that are only going to be used by individuals, then that one person is both the champion and the decision maker. So the decision maker wants to have high level ideas around what the benefits ought to be and how to get there. Yeah. The more hands on people might be more concerned about the operationalization. Can we actually digest the technology? Will it be successful? You know, will it integrate? Will it roll out? Or, you know, would it, would it connect in our world? It, will the disruption of bringing it in and taking out what we have be worth it? Whereas the yep. leader says, this is the vision. This is where we're going, right, guys? This is what we're doing. So you have to be able to market both, but they have different needs. No, I love that. And it's true, right? You have the organizational buyer where you're selling a technology that affects multiple organizations and business units kind of within this mini organ, like within the organization. Then you have the end user who might just need to, tackle a functional task that's only relevant to their department. And that really should be indicative of who you're selling to. And I, I think that's brilliant. Um, David, this has been awesome. If anyone wants to follow along your journey, uh, get in contact with you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? So on LinkedIn, I think I'm the only David Kirkdorfer <laughs> on, in the world. <laughs> so that makes Hello. it simple. That's the easiest way to reach me. Um, yeah. I, uh, and I post there regularly, uh, kind of drop ideas and thoughts and, and ways of looking at marketing problems. Um, so LinkedIn, David Kirkdorfer is the, is the place to go find me. Awesome. Well, David, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. And that is Sour and Sass. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Goodbye.